what I'm working on mostly now, the move from being a reactive company to a proactive company. Insurance is a very reactive business. The only touch point you have with your insurance after purchasing is if you have a claim after nine years. Because a startup is such a crazy ride, you need every resiliency you can gather. The entire company lives by the idea that it's a meritocracy of an idea, and we appreciate independent thinkers. We're not agnostic and we don't live in a silo. We never think that we're God's gift to every good idea. The company is going to die or live probably more because of compliancy than any other stuff. And the way that big guys attack small guys is not on innovation and technology, they attack them on compliancy. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm delighted to welcome Asaf Wand. Asaf is the founder and CEO of Hippo Insurance. He grew up in Israel and graduated from law school and built businesses in Israel before coming to the U.S. to get an MBA at the University of Chicago. He joined McKinsey afterwards for a short stint before getting the entrepreneurial bug. Since then, Asaf has started several successful companies in Israel and the U.S. He started Hippo in late 2015 and has been growing it ever since. Hippo is reimagining home insurance through the lens of the homeowner. The company's been on a tear over the past four years. GGV feels really lucky to have invested in Asaf's seed round. And if we fast forward, the company announced in July 2019 a $100 million Series D funding round, putting the company in unicorn status. So Asaf's built a very exciting company that's been growing really rapidly, and I'm looking forward to digging into the story with him today. Asaf, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks. Very excited by this. Awesome. So I want to start with your idea for getting into Hippo. You didn't come out of the insurance industry. So where did the idea come from for you to build Hippo, which is really modern home insurance? How, how did that come to you, and what was the process like to investigate the opportunity that ultimately led you to decide to start the company? Sure. First point is I actually think that in order to really innovate in a new field, many times it's actually good if you're not coming from the field. So what I'm saying is that I think the, the, the idea of Airbnb could have not been formed by people from the, you know, the hotel industry. And Uber Very could not come from people that are actually in the, you know, in the taxi business and stuff like that. In order to really, really think, not in, in a linear way, it's actually good to not come from the industry, to think about stuff in a, with a fresh set of eyes. You know, I, I love that insight. And in fact, I'm now thinking about uh, when I first met Brian and Joe over at Airbnb, uh, along with Nate, who's been on this program, and um, those guys, obviously Airbnb was very unique, and at the time it was a 10-person company, so it was really early in its life. And I remember I did a reference call on the idea with the HomeAway folks. So not even going to like hotels, but going to another startup that was maybe a few years older and had a different model, and they poo-pooed the idea of Airbnb. You fast forward to today, and they're trying to emulate that model. But I think that's a really good point, that it's, it's difficult to see innovation sometimes if you're in the business already. Right, and, and 
that leads to the, you know, we're probably going to talk about it a bit later, is because you're outside of the industry and what time you bring what people from the industry to basically solidify your business and then safeguard you from the stuff that you exactly. don't know. Exactly, you're anticipating one of my questions. But coming back to your question, so it, it, it's a two-way thing. One, you can actually say I was born into insurance. My dad was uh, basically an insurance agent and then an insurance exec for many, many years. I've been, since I was a, a little kid, I used to drive with him in the car and he used to hand off these calendars and he used to, to think it's like the biggest marketing thing ever to to give his customers the, the calendars because they're all waiting for it. So and does, that hi- was, does, does Hippo have a calendar? Oh, God forbid, no. <laughs> uh, but this was this was a thing for him. So I was born into it and probably like every kid, you, you always think that whatever your dad was doing is broken and it's, and it's crap, so you need to change it. Yeah. So that was one. But the big kind of like more aha moment that I had on insurance was actually working with McKinsey. Mm-hmm. So I was working with McKinsey in New York, and a lot of the customers are financial institutions. And serving them, you get different sense of different companies, but more of like an inside view. And insurance was one of these businesses that you kind of feel it's broken in every component that you're doing, from the sales side to the claim side, mm-hmm. in every component, you know, with the legacy system that, with the, with, that they have, with the regulation, a lot of things that I find very, very appealing personally as an entrepreneur and probably why it, it fits me. Got it. So if you go back and think about the vision you had initially when you were starting Hippo and the current vision of the company, do those things align or to the extent there's they're different. How are they different? How have you evolved the, the the vision over time? There's a lot of similarities, and it, it shifted, but probably it shifted like ten or twenty degrees rather than you know a bigger kind of pivoting thing. So we started the company with the hypothesis that we're going to build the first digital home insurance company, and the thought was, if I'll go really really fast through it, is that the average age of an agent at that point of time was fifty eight, and it's sixty now, so it's moving in one very clear direction. And 85% of newcomers to the profession are leaving the profession within less than three years because they can't really build a book. And right. the idea yeah. was that because that there's no more newcomers coming into the industry and newcomers, basically, new insurance agent used to sell personal lines, which is home and auto, to all of their friends and family and friends of friends and family and nobody coming into the market, the personal lines are going to go direct. Geico and Progressive all really turned auto into direct, and we thought the next lines to go direct are going to be home, life, small, medium businesses kind of stuff. And that was basically the, you know, what we started the company to be the Geico for home insurance, kind of framing like that. Mm. Now, with time, you know, at the beginning you don't know anything, once you start double-clicking, then what you realize is it's actually bigger than that. It's not just about you know, being a direct homeowner insurance, it's about modernizing home insurance. And the reason that it shifted from being a direct is that modernizing, being a direct is only one component of that. Being direct means that person can buy and purchase their policies however they want. By the way, we also realized that, I don't know, a big portion of the people, I would say 40-50% actually want to touch an agent and want to talk to them. So we have a call center as well, so it's not just purely online and, and mobile, some people still want to talk to an agent. But modernizing is a way bigger component than just being direct. Being direct is just you know, how you purchase. Modernizing is about coverage. And instead of covering you for fur coats and pewter boards in China and, and ridiculous stuff like mausoleums and crypts, 
actually focus on stuff that you have in your home, higher coverage for electronics and home office and things of that sort. It's about basically what I'm working on mostly now, the move from being a reactive company to a proactive. Insurance is a very reactive business. The only touch point you have with your insurance after purchasing is if you have a claim after nine years, and even then you know it's going to be a shitty experience. And we look at this time span between point zero that you purchase and point nine that you have a claim on probably the biggest opportunity for the company. Insurance companies don't even call you a customer, they call you a policyholder. Right. You need to say thank you for allowing them to allow it to be a holder of their policy. And we're looking at this nine-year span on how can I bring value to my customers. And for us, this entire uh, you know, wave of insurtech and a lot of basically more direct-to-consumer companies is to realign and refocus on the customer. I think that enterprises have forgot who's the, the end customer at the end of the day. Insurance companies forgot who the end customer. The end customer for them was the agents. And for us, it's you know what Glenn wants. What's the problem for Glenn? How can I solve his problem? Mm. And you know, I also going to focus on an agent if they're a channel, but it's going to be a channel problem as opposed to a product focused uh, area on the customer. Very interesting. So as you've gotten deeper into what it really means to build a modern home insurance experience. Have you relied on your customers to lead you down the path of what they need and what they want? Or have you had to sort of have the vision yourself about what that looks like and then educate the customer? Because sometimes the customer doesn't even know what they should be asking for. How does that process work? It's a very interesting point. And it's like, like it's a mix, like, mm-hmm. like many things. Plus, there is another uh, additional point, which is interesting as well. So fintech companies, and especially insurtech, you don't work uh, in a silo. You work within a compliant, regulated industry. So it's not that Asaf is sitting with his team and I'm like, I have a brilliant idea. I'm going to you know, insure people that start with the letter G uh, and give them a 15% discount. <laughs> it, it, it's about, I need to file, I need to get admitted, I need to support and prove every change that we're doing on the pricing. So it's not that we can do whatever we want. We work with a certain realm of regulation and laws. So... We had to work within that span, but at the same time, we had to infuse stuff that we believe in. I'll give you an example. We don't charge credit card fees. And you might think it's trivial, but for most insurance companies, if not all of them, that can be $100 a year. It can be $5 per transaction, mm. plus a 3 to 5%, and it became a revenue center. But our benchmark is not what uh, Allstate and State Farm are doing, but what Amazon is doing. And with Amazon... You don't think, and because you don't have credit card fees, it's not your problem. So we decided that these kind of things we're going to remove. There is an exuberant amount of fees embedded in every policy, something in the region of $170. Initiation fee, policy fee, inspection fee, you name it. And we thought that's not how we should get compensated, and it's not transparent to the customer, so we should remove as many of the fees as possible. Now, some of it is trivial because customers, if you ask them what they want, they want the maximum coverage and the least amount of pay. So it's not very difficult, but they don't know exactly what... Customers don't understand their insurance. And this was actually a really interesting realization. When we started the company, the thought that we had is it's going to be like a puzzle. And we're going to ask Glenn to put all of the coverages that he wants, and we're going to let you customize it. And that's going to be awesome. What can be better than you customizing your insurance? And then you realize nobody wants to learn about insurance. Nobody cares about that. Yeah, there's a headache involved uh, with, with and, trying and, and, to figure out everything. Exactly. But it shifted our state of mind 
that instead of us giving you all of the education and letting you choose, it shifted the burden of responsibility on us. So now we need to make this decision for you to make sure that Glenn is covered for what we think you should be covered. And we use uh, basically a certain prism, which is like, this is what I would have told my brother if I was consulting him and said, no, sir, I think you should do that, do that and have that and have that and not put ridiculous stuff that doesn't go and pass this kind of filter. That's a really interesting lens to use. Like, what would I advise my brother to do? That's the most honest way to actually treat uh, our customers. I'll give you some examples of these things, for instance. So we, we think that you know, the entire contract that you have with an insurance company is that the insurance company is going to be your safety net if, God forbid, something happened. And you don't want to think about it, you don't want to hear about it, but if, God forbid, something happened, you want to know that it's there. However, with the passing of time and with what's going on with the, the insurance product in general, the safety net started to have gaping holes. So all of a sudden, you, after nine years, you're calling your agent and you say something like, uh, my tree in the backyard just lifted the sewage and I have $11,000 damage. And the agent's going to come back and say, listen, Glenn, I'm really, really sorry. You That's never bought a service line. line. Yeah, service line, right? And like, yeah. what the hell is that? Exactly. And he's going to say, yeah, that's uh, what connects the municipality to your home and it's not covered. And, and now the first gut kind of thing you're going to come is like, I knew it's going to happen. I've been paying you guys for nine years, every month, and I knew that just when something's going to happen, you're going to say that. And he's going to say, what do you want from me, Glenn? It's not in the contract and you never purchased this endorsement. And now you're going to walk around and you're going to be super annoying. Now, as if it's not annoying enough, you're actually going to tell your next door neighbor about that. And he's going to say, I had the exact same thing happen to me like six months ago and my insurance company actually paid for that. Now you're really like, they're trying to mess with you. Yeah. But it's just that the other insurance company added as an endorsement and you didn't have and you didn't have a discussion. So we realized that our goal is to make sure that Glenn is always insured for what he should be insured for. Now, by us refocusing on modern stuff, by us removing fees, we became quite significantly cheaper. So we allowed ourselves to add all of these coverages ah. in. So every customer of Hippo is covered for all of these stuff that you don't know about. Service line, every customer is, is covered for. Water backup, if you have a surge of water from the sewage, we covered for that. If you have an explosion of your HVAC or your furnace, you covered for that. There's a thing called ordinance and law. Glenn bought a house from 1997, but the damage happened in 2021. And the city of Palo Alto passed several laws that you need more studs, you need more base and stuff like that. The rebuilding cost of your house to the spec of 2021 is just not sufficient. So I bought insurance to rebuild if there's a total loss, and I can't even do that because it's not up to spec. So we give all of that. There's a bunch of stuff that... Uh. You don't really, really educate it, but we are, so Hippo is not just that it's usually cheaper, it's also have the most comprehensive coverage and what we think people should have. Now, we have this discussion also many times on stuff that we thought you should be covered for and we realize you shouldn't, like ID protection. We thought that's brilliant. And ID protection also covers like if, God forbid, your kid said something bad on someone and you're being sued you know, online and stuff like that. But then we realized that the product is covering you for $25,000, but it's not $25,000 on the loss of identity. It's to revoke, rebring back the, the identity. If you need a lawyer and stuff like that, it pays for that. And that's not what we thought. Right. And then it's not a, a good product for us to offer our customers, so we remove that. I although it, it seemed like a logical case for uh, our customer base. Okay, so it sounds like you've really taken the stance that like you've got your customers back. 
yes. uh, in this process, which is obviously very different than the incumbents and how they operate. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this market and the competition. You mentioned Allstate, State Farm. There are some big brands uh, that you compete with who've been in this market forever. They operate very differently than what you've just described is your ethos at Hippo. You mentioned Amazon as kind of a company you want to behave like and maybe, you know, be ready to compete with if they get into this industry, I suspect. The good news here is it's a big market. The bad news is it's a big market. So there's lots of incumbents. Do you guys spend a lot of time thinking about the competition and um, trying to differentiate yourself? Or do you really just focus on, hey, this is like we're hippo, this is what we do, and not worry so much about competitors? We're not agnostic and we don't live in a silo. We never think that we're God's gift to every good idea. And I think a lot of the competitors, every once in a while, have something which is brilliant and a really good idea, and they're doing stuff in a good way. So we're always monitoring what everybody else is doing. But you know, the North Star that we're actually working is our ethos and our focus on the customer. And home insurance is a $100 billion market that actually grows at $5 billion a year, which is a complete you know, industries themselves when Huge. you're looking at like, you know, software and stuff like that. Even if we capture 1% to 2%, we built a really, really big company yep. to start with. And we think there's enough people that, you know, I, I don't need to address every customer and every person and every people. But I think getting 5% market share is not that ambitious in the grand scheme of things of the size of the market and what everybody else is doing. Now, as I started, because I worked with McKinsey, I also know a lot of the challenges of you know, how deep and how problematic are the legacy system. We built a full stack, every component that we built, our policy management system, our data warehousing, our data components, our claim center, our claims, uh, you know, basically system. Everything that we built, we built in-house to accommodate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that by itself gives me so much flexibility to differentiate. We launch a state in something like two to three weeks on four products. It takes the industry 18 to 24 months. We're doing rate calibration. So basically when we're entering a new state, then, you know, for lack of a better word, sometimes we fuck up on the pricing. But it, the market is so fast to give us feedback that because I see that, let's say our conversion is X, but if I have 3X conversion in one place, it's probably that the price was too low. And if I have, you know, a third of an X, then I know it was too high. Right. So that's a good way to start really, really looking at it and start fine-tuning it. Sometimes we do rate calibration three or four times a year. The industry does it every five or six years. The systems and the pace that we have enable us to do stuff that I'm just not really afraid that they'll be able to do. And if they can, it's a big enough market that I don't think uh, I'm not super weary of that. Okay, got it. Let's shift gears a bit. I want to just talk about your founding team. You have a, you have a co-founder, yeah. uh, Al. You guys, I don't think, knew each other long before you started Hippo. So tell us about the process of, you know, why did you decide you needed a co-founder? What were you looking for in a co-founder? And based on how it's gone with you two guys, what advice you give to others who are thinking about starting companies and, and what they should be looking for in, in co-founders? Sure. So my previous company, Sabi, I was a solo founder. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's a bigger curse in life than that. <laughs> it's it's such a pain. It's it's horrible. And the bizarre stuff that it's it's horrible because you don't have anybody to share the psychological load more than you know the workload and stuff. You can actually hire people and they can take most of the workload from you. But the psychological load and the psychological impact for you as a founder are, are massive, and you need someone who's basically 
work on a different amplitude. So when you have a bad day, he just came back, no, I had an awesome day. And when you need someone to basically counter you on the psychological level, and, and that's one. The second thing is the entire company lives by the idea that it's a meritocracy of an idea, and we appreciate independent thinkers. And my co-founder is one of the strongest independent thinkers you can find. And it's really, really good to have a very strong debate and especially since we're Israelis, and they always say that every you know every two Israelis have three opinions. Right. So this is basically the case. In order to come to the best idea, you need to have a discussion and a debate, and you need a co-founder for that. Now comes the point of what co-founder you find. I needed a very strong technology person. So I, one of the realization, if you need a person with a certain skill set, go and talk to the strongest people with that skill set that you know. <laughs> if I need a CTO, go and talk to the strongest CTOs you know and ask them who's the best CTO. If I want an investor, you know, a really good investor, I'm going to go and talk to Glenn and he's going to say, listen, this and this and this are really, really good investors <laughs> because this is your world and this is your network and this is what you live by. So I talk to the strongest CTOs that I got, that I, I know, and consistently his name came back is like, listen, this guy is not going to be in the market for a long time. He was running his own shop, and he just decided he actually wanted to bite into something like a big problem. So that was the first kind of insight. I because I, I can't even vet right. how, how good he is in technology. What do I know? I'm not a technologist. You'll throw some big names you know, on the stack and stuff like that, and you already pass. I don't know how to calibrate a person. But if I have several strong people that calibrates for me, then it passed that. But then comes actually the more interesting thing in my mind. So when you analyze why companies fail, especially between founders, a lot of time it's because of misalignment between the founders. And these misalignments can be, most of them, addressed early on. And it's about values, it's about what's the work-life balance in the company? What's your work schedule? If he comes to work at noon and he works until midnight, but I have two kids at home and I come at eight, there's bound to be some clashes because there's going to be two different organizations. There's going to be the tech who's coming at noon and leaving at twelve. It's going to be an issue. Yeah. What's an exit scenario for you? Fifty million dollars is enough. Five hundred million dollars. Five billion. We're going public no matter what. If I'm thinking A and he's thinking B, there's going to be issues with that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, uh, decision making. Who's making what decision and responsibility? We basically took honeymoon. We went to, you know, we went to Carmel for a night and we just sat down and not talk about how we see our business, you know, become world domination kind of thing. It's more about how do you view this? How do I view this? Do you want to be in the front of the, you know, of the company? We have a Wall Street Journal, you know, article. Do you want to be quoted? Is it important for you? Do you are you a CTO that actually want to be a CEO? Is that the thing? I Does see. all of things like that that just simmer? And so create really so need, much stuff. So you covered a lot of ground before you really got started to make sure like the nuts and bolts fit well together. Yes. Yeah. Because I think that makes you a lot more resilient. Yeah. And because a startup is such a crazy ride, you need every resiliency you can gather and make sure that you know you have your back covered and stuff like that. So have you guys had any disagreements, meaningful disagreements along the way over the last four years of Hippo? And if so, how have you managed tougher times between the founders? It was relatively uh, uh, a streamlined ride. We didn't have significant disagreements okay. between us. I think the roles and responsibilities that we had between us is such that I don't know shit about technology, so I let him make the technology decisions, and he hardly interferes with you know the business decision. We always sit down and present to each other, and I am gauging 
Why do you do that? What's the interest? What's the cost? What's the thing? Walk me through it. I think only if you can explain in a logical way, in a consistent way, your thought process, then it, it's a valid decision. If you know it's a gut decision, then it's not. That's not good enough. Come back and do your homework. And same goes for me when I need to explain to him what I'm doing. And every once in a while, we just put quantification. What are the chances of success versus not? What are you know the impact and not? And we said, you know what? But the math supports to do that. So we should actually do that. So it's it, so it you're was holding, holding each other accountable and being realistic with each other when you're making bets about the bets you're making and and and, and supporting. The yeah. second that someone one of us is going with a certain decision, and I think that's a company should be run anyway. You can have whatever debate you want, but once a decision was done, everybody done. needs to be Line supportive. And sometimes we put a gating factor of like let's let's evaluate it in three months and actually see that we made the right decision. Okay, I want to re- return to something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned, hey, listen, our, our industry is regulated, right? Yes. Um, uh, that puts some constraints on things you can do, things you must do. And you know, increasingly we're seeing this with companies that are building software businesses that in the real world, you got to deal with the real world. And so there are physical constraints, including regulation, that, that, that companies deal with. How has it changed how you guys operate? And do you view it as a as a positive in your business, or or is it only a negative? And you know any any kind of rules of the road or tricks of the trade that you've established as you've dealt with uh, with with regulation and and really state by state, so it even makes it harder. So I love regulatory risk as an entrepreneur. It's it's a moat. It negates the stuff that two guys are sitting in the garage and saying, let's start an insurance company. And then the first thing someone is going to call you and tell them when they're going to call them and say, you know how much regulation? It's 50 states, it's 50 regulators, you need to file, you need to get admitted. And it would negate probably 95% of the potential competitors. That's one. The second thing, it's actually quantifiable risk. You go to the best lawyer you can find and you ask them, what does it take to get admitted in California? And what is needed? And he's going to basically look at you and give you, I think you have a, a good chance, and this is what you need to do, one, two, three, four, five. It's relatively formulastic. It's going to take six months and $150,000, and I can plug it in the model. In VC world, you never have that. No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always, people always overestimate the time that they're going to do stuff. It's going to be way, you know, half of the time that's going to take, and it's going to cost three times the cost. And, and you as a VC always had that kind of like, safety latch on top of that. In regulation, I can actually quantify and do that. Now, on the flip side, it adds more burden and more cost for a startup, which is non-traditional. We have a head of compliance. We have a general counselor since we were like 30 people because I view compliancy as one of the most important things in the company. The company is going to die or live probably more because of compliancy mm. than any other stuff. And the way that big guys attack small guys is not on innovation and technology, they attack them on compliancy. Small guys defend with IP and technology, big guys attack because they have 15 regulators on their, on right. their staff. Right. And because of that, I actually need to be holier than the Pope. I need to have a higher standard than anybody else on compliance. I need to have a head of compliance that checks everything, every decision that comes, every marketing, every brochure, Every decision that we make needs to be super compliant. Hmm. So we view it as a very, very significant component and differentiative aspect in the company. But it's not a negative, it's just is. So you want to be innovative, but you've got to make sure every, every decision you make still falls within the bounds of what's compliant. Yes, and we can't be very gray. Yeah. So you know, startups many times work 
on this grayish kind of line. It's yes. fine. It's good enough. Yep. Or we'll fix what it we've later. seen in the last exactly, yeah. either fix it later or will be so big so customers would basically apply pressure to to have that. That's not how we operate, and that's not how we we think about that. Very cool. Let's talk about funding for a second. So, you know, you raised three and a half million dollar seed round before InsureTech was was really a thing, and uh, you know had to hustle to get that round done. And then you fast forward to your last two rounds, which were seventy million and then a hundred million, as we mentioned earlier. So, you've raised over two hundred million as a company now across uh, cumulatively. So clearly the the winds have changed, right? They're, they were at maybe at your face a little bit, now they're at your back. Tell us like what's changed and, and what you've noticed has worked well in the tougher environment versus like you know the go 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 environment in terms of raising money. So two insights that, that I got from that. One, in general, work on the biggest problem you can find. You're going to work the same amount of hours, the same time if you're solving how to make a nice uh, I don't know bottle cup. Or if you are solving, you know, solving a world hunger, you're still going to have completely occupied. So might as well work on something big. The second component is that all of the stuff that were very, very difficult for us in the seed round flipped and became the reason actually investors wanted to work with us. All of the stuff, you know, it's highly regulatory. You know, it's difficult to build the entire stack. What do you guys know about insurance? All of that kind of stuff, which were the burdens of why people don't, didn't want to invest right. early. Now become the reasons why become the reason why like oh it's regulatory and it's it's a moat you know you guys learned so fast on doing <laughs> stuff and you surpassed that all of that flipped one eighty interesting now being on top of a wave that is pushing in the in the right direction is 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 a crazy force that you're getting basically tons of inbound and a lot of interest and you become somewhat of a darling of an industry just because you were ahead of the curve mm-hmm. so we were uh, you know just causing the wave now because we were ahead of it at the beginning. It might have an impact on the first like after the seed, the, you know, the first like two rounds. But then later stage rounds, as you know very, very well, it's very, very data driven. Yeah. It's very execution driven. Nobody gives you a hundred million dollar check because it's it's very, very hot field and stuff like that. People are doing deep analysis and data and court analysis and stuff like that. And you know, the investors that we got to lead this round, which is bond capital, are very data centric mm-hmm. and, and we had to jump through a lot of hopes. Nobody throws any money on, on you. What is interesting is that the relationship that you build with people in the market matters because they're actually pulling your past slides and deck to look where you are on execution. Now we have a thing which is was probably against us early on. We believe that you know you say what you do, you do what you say. And when we put a number in a presentation, it's the number that we set down and we believe we're going to achieve, but most VCs give you a certain discount on that. And then oh, it doesn't look that impressive and stuff like that and we're like I, I don't know, this is what we're going to achieve. Right. If you're doing it repeatedly, then you were able to educate the investors that what you say is what you mean, right? And then it becomes a, a positive. At the beginning, it was negative, and we were just like, "I'm not going to write something that I don't think I'm going to deliver on." But after a while, you, you be- actually educated. You them. become like a team that delivers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you earned it, but now you know. Now the sun is shining, and it's a good time. But it's because you caught the right wave, and then you've delivered the numbers as well. It kind of took took both things to get there. Yes, and it's never easy. It's always. Uh, 
Adults people funding round always look trivial and simple. Yeah. It always looks yeah. from the side, oh, I can't believe this dumbass just raised that much and then the VC is throwing money on them. Yeah. And it never is the case. I have failed to see an easy funding round yeah. because it's not just about getting the money, it's getting the money with the right terms, with the right investor, with the right valuation. There's so many, many other kind of things that needs to align in order to have the proper funding, which is never trivial. And at the end of the day, there are you know, hundreds if not thousands of investors and you need one to actually put the stuff to make this round happen. And even that is far from trivial. Luckily, you know, the company is really, really doing well yep. and we built good relationship with the investors that we wanted and it works well. So speaking of, of the company doing well, can you share, um, people would be interested in, in hearing a little bit about what you share publicly, just kind of like the high level numbers that you guys track and share about you know how you view the business, whether it be policies or states sure. you're in, uh, people in the company, et cetera. So we we launched the company in October 2015. The first policy was sold in April 2017. It takes a year and a half to build the infrastructure, for filing, regulation, and all of that kind of stuff. We started where we were doing uh, just homeowners in California. Mm-hmm. Now we have four products all within the realm of home. So we're doing home, we're doing condo, we're doing investment properties, and we're doing builder's product. Each one is actually different, and I'm not going to go too much in length into these things. So we have four products, and we're doing it now in 18 markets. We're covering 53% of the U.S. population under coverage. I would say that what we used to do in December 2017 in a month, we're probably doing by 10 a.m. in a regular day. Wow. So it really, really took pace. Huge acceleration. Yes. We are north of $160, $170 million in premiums now. You know, and, and, and honestly, it, from our standpoint, it just started. There's so much other initiatives that are moving. We have very, very strong partners that are working now. The team is super strong, and this is just the beginning. Ah, it's really exciting to, uh, to think about what the future holds for Hippo. Asaf, you're almost... You're almost done, but we got to put you on the hot seat for the last couple of questions. I'm going to ask you just a few things. Say the, say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's a favorite book that you recommend for other founders? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a massive Ayn Rand uh, fan. Okay. Uh, so for me, Fountainhead is probably the most uh, entrepreneurial kind of book. And then Atlas Shrugged is the most uh, you know, capitalistic book. Okay. But I think it, it helps you in resiliency on like your belief in yourself versus... A system because you need it at the beginning. You're pushing something, and everybody tells you it's stupid, it's dumb, it's da da da. da. You need to really have a belief in yourself. Yes. So I'm self-reliant. Uh, I, I read it every like two to three years right. to get a boost. That's our first Ann Rand mention on uh, Founder Real Talk. So uh, that distinction belongs to you. But I'm a big fan as well of those books. What's the best advice you ever received that you like to give to other founders? I think it's what I basically said: work on 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 the biggest thing you can mm-hmm. work. I think some of the ventures I worked with before were solving a challenge or an issue, but the prospect and the chance of them forming to be a big company was just not there. Even in the what-if scenario and if we're executing everything and we're getting the right customer and stuff like that, it could never be a really big business, which means it's not the right problem for you to work on. Got it. That's a, that's a good one and a North Star for, I think, a lot of founders. Last question for you, and this could be the most important. <laughs> Best falafel place anywhere in the world? Oh, God. That, that's almost a, a religious question for an <laughs> Israeli. 
I like a Kosem in Tel Aviv. A Kosem, yes. okay. In Tel Aviv. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, the magician, right? The magician, yes. yes. For me, it works. It's, it's fresh, it's good, it's open till late. It's, uh, it's a place I'm trying to stop whenever I'm, I'm in Tel Aviv. Well, Asaf, thank you so much. It's been great being at Hippo headquarters here for this episode, but I hope next time we meet, we'll be at HaKosem in Tel Aviv. You're on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs> <laughs>